I forgot to uh, get a notice in the bulletin about the men's study, uh, which will begin this coming Wednesday. Uh, we will restart for the fall meeting at uh, the King's Table over on Fairview at 6.30 on Wednesday morning for those of you men that, uh, that are involved. Um, I have something on my mind that I want to chat with you about this morning. I hope that I'm not misunderstood. It would be easy to misconstrue some of the things that I'm saying. And I hope at least the intent of my heart comes through, even though you may misunderstand some of the things that, uh, that need to be said. Um, I've had a lot of people ask me within the last week or two what I make of the situation in the Middle East and the relationship of that conflict to the end times. And uh, their questions are, are often very serious. They want to know how this puzzle all fits together. Where does Russia fit into uh, some sort of end time scenario? How do these oil-rich lands uh, fit together into what the scriptures have to tell us about the end? And... Uh, I don't know why people ask me. Uh, I uh, love to theologize with the best of them, but I don't always have answers to these questions. But what I see in both Christians and non-Christians is, is what someone has called an apocalyptic mood. More and more people are thinking about the future and what it holds. Some of it is just curiosity. People want to know what's in the offing. Uh, as Charles Kettering said, uh, since we have to live the rest of our lives in the future, we want to know what's going to happen there. So our curiosity leads us to ask those kinds of questions because we, we want to know what it will be like so we can be prepared. Some of it comes out of real fear and dread. People are very uncertain about the future. I see a lot of uptightness, a lot of anxiety. People don't know how to handle the future. Uh, war and rumors of nuclear war abound. Um, there are more and more madmen that have their hands on the bomb. We're wondering if someone won't blow up the world this week, and since we sit on it, you know, we're concerned. Uh, I read recently about a little boy who was asked what he wanted to be when he grew up, and he said, alive. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I hear him. Uh, this is a real concern, I think, for all of us. And even Christians are caught in this tide. If I can judge from the, uh, from the number of books and sermons that I've heard on the radio and the kind of preoccupation that people have with the future. It concerns me, though, that so much of our current interest in future things tends toward calendarizing and setting of specific timetables and setting up end time scenarios that are airtight. That concerns me a lot. Now don't get me wrong. I think we have to think hard about what scripture tells us about the future. We all ought to have our ideas, but we need to listen to what Paul says when he says we should not go beyond what is written. 
going beyond what scripture tells us can get us all into trouble. You know, there, there was this dear guy last year that predicted the end of the world on a certain day. And uh, the day came and went. And I have to feel for the guy. And I don't know how you'd ever live down a gaff like that. Uh, everybody knows his name. Everybody knows what he, what he predicted. But even those among us that are a little more sober and inclined to uh, be a, maybe a little more thoughtful about the future sometimes go too far. We, we want things set in concrete. We want to know exactly what's going on. And so we're inclined to be far too, how can I put it? We're far too specific about things that we're uncertain about. It reminds me of what the old rabbis used to call pilpel, uh, which is hair splitting, uh, the making of small differences. And in my mind, as I read some of the books that are on the shelves today and as I listen to some of the preachers, there's an awful lot of pilpel going around. Uh, I can't help but think, and you'll have to forgive the way my mind works, but it reminds me too much of the current Pepsi challenge. Even if there is a difference between Pepsi and Coke, I sometimes wonder what in the world difference it makes. And yet, for some people, those differences are sacred, and they invest as much authority in their views of the coming of Christ as they do in the coming itself. And what concerns me is that very often these small differences become the basis for inclusion in the church, or at least in their local churches. I remember some years ago picking up a doctrinal statement from a church, it's not in this area, but in another place, and reading their, their uh, statement on eschatology, end-time things. And it occurred to me as I read it that neither Martin Luther nor John Calvin, if they were alive today, could be a member of that church. As a matter of fact, I couldn't think of a single pre-20th century Christian who could. The other concern that I have is what this is doing to non-Christians. You may not be aware of it, but a lot of the books that are being written today on end-time themes are, are appearing in secular bookstores. But they're shelved not with religious books or theological studies, as you would expect, but with uh, New Age and uh, Eastern metaphysical stuff, things that have to do with uh, prediction and augury and foretelling and and. Uh, fortune-telling and those sorts of things, which lets me know that they simply view them as part of the current craze toward divining the future, getting, getting some news from outside on what the future is like. And then, if you'll pardon me, there's some of the other zaniness that we project, the rapture T-shirts and the bumper stickers on cars that announce that the driver of the car on which the sticker appears may suddenly disappear, and end-time comic books that are designed to scare the living daylights out of little children. And, you know, and I can't help but thinking, you know, can anybody be blamed for scoffing? It really concerns me because the emphasis that we're making in a lot of these uh, books and writings and a lot of the literature that's around is not the emphasis that Scripture makes on the end times. 
Now, please understand me. I appreciate the sincerity of people that are doing this work. Some of them are good thinkers, hard thinkers, but it just concerns me that we are not making the emphasis that Scripture makes about the end of the world. Now, I'd like for you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3. Second uh, Peter is um, Peter's swan song. This was the last letter that he wrote, at least the letter that the last letter that we know anything about. It's very close to the theme of Second Timothy. Both have to do with end time themes. Second Timothy was Paul's swan song. This is Peter's uh, swan song. Let me begin reading with chapter 3, verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. The first letter, of course, was the letter of 1 Peter. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. It's an interesting word. It's, you, know, you think of Peter as a fisherman and unlettered, but he uses a word that was current in classical Greek. It's used by Plato and other Greek philosophers for reasonable argument. He wants us to use our minds, not our emotions. We Christians are to be girt about by truth. We're to be sober in our thinking. That's what, that's what keeps us straight. We've got to get our minds right, as Cool Hand Luke would put it. He says, I want to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior, through your apostles. So he wants us to recall something about the future. Uh, as, the, as the white queen said to Alice in Wonderland, it's a very poor memory that only works backwards. Our memory should work forwards. There's something to remember about the future. And then he spells out for us two things that we need to recall about the future, and only two things. And I think what Peter does in this next paragraph or this next chapter is summarize for us what is said elsewhere in Scripture over and over and over again. Because he says at the very end, Paul also said these things. He's hard to understand, he said, and we all say amen to that. But nevertheless, I'm simply saying again what, what Paul said. Since Peter and Paul are the major writers of, of the New Testament, this is something of a summary of what the New Testament writers had to say about in, in things, in time things. Now here are the two things that we can know. Look at verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, it will come unexpectedly. Jesus said it's not for us to know the times and the seasons. We're not, we don't know the times and the date. Of the, of the Lord's coming. We don't have a clue. We can't even guess when he is coming. It will come like a thief. Now, it won't catch us unawares. It will only come like a thief to those who are not prepared for it. <clears throat> Jesus makes the same point. But for those who are not prepared, it will catch them by surprise. <coughs> Pardon me. Now, the, the, thing to know, the thing to know is that we do not know the time and the date of his arrival, but it is a fact 
We don't need to, to worry about our Lord coming back to set things right. One of these days, he will appear to set right what has been wrong since the very beginning of, of human history. Our Lord ascended. He promised that he returned. One of these days he will touch down, and then he's going to put everything right. The day of the Lord will come. Man is having his day today, but uh, the Lord will have his day. And when that occurs, the heavens will disappear with a roar. He uses a word that I think would uh, would uh, produce in their mind uh, sort of an ominous sense. It's the it's a word that's used for a whistling of an arrow. And uh, it brought to my mind the sound of outgoing artillery going over your head. Some of you men and women have heard that sound. It's like a ripping, tearing sound. And I've only heard it going out, never coming in. But uh, nevertheless, it just causes you to flinch. And that's the word that he, uh, he has in mind. Boom. And the universe will disappear. The elements will be destroyed, literally loosed, separated into its component parts. The particles that make up the universe will become unbound. And then our Lord will bind them back together in a new way and create a new heavens and a new earth. And the earth, listen to this, and everything in it will be laid bare. Everything in it. In other words, all matter will be destroyed. It will be purified. And then it will be redesigned along new lines. Now, it, it doesn't seem that that's true on the face of it. This is something we simply have to take by faith. Because it appears as though our, our old world, even though it, you know, it is getting old, is just rocking relentlessly on. And it uh, doesn't look like anything like that is going to happen. There will be no intervention that what is will always be. And uh, Peter is aware of that fact. And he says, as a matter of fact, in, in these last days, that's the days in which we live, we're living in the last days, there will be people that will say that this universe will never end. And notice he be- that's the way he begins in verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Remember when we studied the book of Hebrews, I pointed out that the the book begins with that statement. God who spoke to the prophets in various ways has in these last days spoken unto us in a son. So the last days are not some far off uh, era. The last days is the period between the first and second comings of Christ. We are living in the last days. And if you want further proof of that fact, if you read the book of Jude, Jude quotes Peter. He quotes this passage and he applies it to the scoffers of his age. Now, Peter said that it's coming. Jude, who wrote just a few years after Peter, said they're here. So no one had to wait very long for men and women to begin to scoff at the idea that God was going to come back, touch down on this earth, and change it. You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming you promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on 
as it, as it has since the beginning of creation. And I read that, and I thought of the opening lines of Carl Sagan's Cosmos. And his, that statement is getting to be famous now. The, the universe is all that is, all that ever was, and all that ever will be. Uh, that's what people are saying. This, what you see is what you get. You know, Flip Wilson said, this is it. It's all there is. And it's going to go on forever. A cycle may be a straight line, but it's all going to go on forever. But it won't. And Peter says, what I'd like to do is remind you that at least at one point in history, God did intervene. And he cites the, the fact of the flood. Verse Five, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and with water. By water also the world, that is the world of people, of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So there will be another uh, time when the world is is judged. Now for right now, God is delaying. Verse 8, don't forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So the delay in our Lord's coming is not the result of his indifference, nor is it the result of his impotence, but it's because he's merciful. Therefore, God's timetable is not regulated by the, the, uh, the turning of the earth or the revolutions of the earth around the sun, but rather by his redemptive program. He's waiting for people to respond to the gospel. In the passage that Don read earlier, that same thought uh, appears, this idea that we're not to be frightened, we're not to be alarmed, we're not to get uptight and nervous about about the things that are coming. Don't fear, he said, but this gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. See, and that's why God is permitting us to suffer. That's why he's permitting this, this cruel, hard old world to continue to revolve on. That's why he's, he's letting things go. That's why he's not trying to set everything right now. He's permitting his people and others to suffer just as they did in Egypt because he's waiting for people to respond to the gospel. But as sure as night follows day, one of these days he's going to come back and he's going to judge the earth. We don't know when, but we do know that his coming is a sure thing. One of these days he'll come back and he's going to burn everything up. Now some are saying, nah, that'll never happen. And we say, oh yeah, that's those ungodly scientists and those cynics and those people that don't believe the word. But may I say that it can also apply to us because even though those of us who believe, at least ostensibly believe the gospel, very often live as though we do not believe that matter is going to be burned up. Oh, you know, we, we all agree because we believe in a, in a spiritual life, in a spiritual realm and sphere that matter is not all that there is, but we act as though we believe that matter is all that matters. Our clothes and the way we look and you know, our condos and our careers and, and uh, 
our capital assets, and all of the things in which we put our faith, all of the things in, in which we believe, all the things that give us security one of these days are going to be burned out. One of Carolyn's favorite statements were when something gets destroyed around, around our house is, oh, well, it's going to burn up someday anyway. And that ought to be our attitude toward things because one of these days things will vanish in a split second and all the things that we put our mind and our money on will disappear. And you see, if, if, we're, if we're authentically Christian, we'll believe that and we will not put our trust in anything that's material. You can't take it with you. It will not last. It does not endure. These things are not eternal. Uh, I was awakened one morning about 2 o'clock by my son who came, came running into our bedroom. And he said, uh, Dad, the house across the street is on fire. And I went running out the front door. And sure enough, our neighbors right across the street their house was on fire, and the fire eventually consumed the entire house. <clears throat> they left uh, an appliance plugged in the, an outlet in the, in the garage, and it shorted out, burned the house down. And uh, our neighbor, when, uh, they, when she came home, she looked at the house, and she said, Everything that has any meaning at all to me is gone. And I thought, how sad, how sad. You know, sure, if our house burned up, I'd... I would not take that lightly. I'd be big, big trouble. But I, you know, I just cannot say that everything in this world that has meaning to me is gone. But I think we need to think very seriously about how we do view the material things that that we have, hold them loosely, because one of these days they're all going to burn up. Now notice. Peter's second point. The first is that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and everything will be burned up, verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Now that's the constant emphasis of Scripture. It's not on what is going to become of us, getting... The end times all racked up so that we know exactly what will happen, one event after another. That's not the emphasis of Scripture. It is not what we are becoming, it's what we are, and it's not what will become of us, it's what we are to be. It's what we are to become by God's grace. It's the kind of people that God wants us to be. Peter spells it out for us. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy. It is uh, distinctively different lives. As Jesus said uh, to his apostles, what do you do more than these others? You know, what is it that sets you apart from others? Is it the fact that you're always going to meetings? Or you're always talking about God? Is, is it that you carry a great big Bible? Is it that you have a, a button that proclaims the gospel? What is it that sets you apart from the world? It's your character. It's a godly lifestyle. It's, it's that uh, it's what we talked about when we were looking at James uh, four that, that the beauty of Christ the winsomeness of His character that's what sets us apart. It's being holy and godly. That's the word for worshipful. 
in other words, we, we have a deep devotion to Christ out of which everything springs. We love him with all of our heart. And, uh, and out of that comes a change in life. So it's not that we love the word. It's our, we should love the word. But, but it's the word that leads us into a relationship with Christ, an intimate personal relationship with him, so that we love him. As Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Oh, yes, Lord, you know I love. Do you love me? Oh, sure, Lord, you know I love. Do you love me? That's the issue. Are we worshipful people? Do we love the Lord with all of our heart and our soul and all of our minds? Do we love his appearing? Do we love that thought that one of these days he's going to break through the clouds and he's going to snatch us out of this, this world that we live in? And then does our life reflect the beauty of that of that relationship, the intimacy of, of the knowledge of, of God. He puts it another way in verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, looking forward to what? The dissolution of all things, the destruction of your house, the destruction of your, uh, uh, your vacation property, the uh, destruction of your mutual funds, the destruction... The destruction of your retirement uh, plans, uh, since it's all going to burn up someday. Since you look forward to this. Now, that's a rather odd perspective on life. So then, dear friends, since you look forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace. Spotless, blameless, and at peace. So... What we learn from Peter is this. In view of the certainty of God's coming, two characteristics ought to prevail. Purity or godliness and tranquility. Those are the marks of authentic Christians, those who know what's in the offing. They are peaceful people and they are godly, pure people. Now, we don't have time to develop this, but uh, uh, Peter tells us what this godliness entails in chapter 1. If you turn back uh, there with me, please. Remember, Peter says we are to be godly. He tells us in verse 3, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Godliness begins with God, begins in his heart. He puts it into ours. Where does it come from? Through the knowledge of him who has called us by his eternal glory and goodness. How do you get goodness? You get it from the one who called us to goodness. The one who gave us, his, as he puts it, his exceedingly great promises. That's the word that leads us into our love for God, love for Christ. And he says, furthermore, you have the divine nature. You have the very nature of Christ resident within you. You have the mind of Christ who energizes you to, to be what God calls you to be. Verse 5, for this reason, because you have the divine nature, because you have the precious promises, because you have everything you need for life and godliness, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Peter, again, picks up a term that's used by uh, the classical Greek philosophers. It means, a little hard to describe, it means, it means, Manhood, if I can use that term, womanhood, it, you know, it, it, it means being what every person knows a man or a woman should be. No one has to tell you what you ought to be. You know. 
The problem is not knowing, it's doing. And uh, Peter says that's one of the things that God produces in our life. We begin to act like real men and women. Add to your goodness knowledge. That's the word for intimacy. Intimacy with Christ. Love and devotion for him. And to knowledge, self-control. That's a presence of mind. Poise. Quietness of heart in the midst of, of pressure. Add to self-control perseverance. The ability to endure hard and difficult things. Perseverant godliness. That's the word for worship. Again, a worshipful spirit. And add to your worship brotherly kindness. It's the word for magnanimity, big-heartedness. You know, heart as big as all outdoors. It's responsive and open and loving and acceptant toward people. Includes people in rather than excluding them out. And add to brotherly kindness love. A love as rich and as inclusive as God's love. See, now that's what Peter is talking about. And those are the qualities that ought to characterize, uh, characterize us. Those are the qualities that endure. They'll never fade away. The other characteristic is tranquility. Purity and tranquility. Let me read something that Evelyn Underhill wrote. I like the way she puts it. Those who, she's talking about those who understand the future. and What, what God is going to do. Authentic Christians have three distinguishing characteristics, tranquility, gentleness, and strength, which suggests an immense depth and a steadiness that comes from the fact that our small action is part of the total action of God, whose spirit, as another saint has said, works always in tranquility. Fuss and feverishness, anxiety, intensity, intolerance, instability, pessimism, and wobble, and every kind of hurry and worry, These, even on the highest levels, are sign of the self-made and self-acting soul. The people that God renews are never like that. They share the quiet and noble qualities of the one to whom they belong. As someone has said, once we are informed of the fact that God holds the last moment, then we don't need to dread the next. Nothing like a siege. And... uh, It was a tough time for the people of God. Isaiah says, you're going to be all right. And out of these hard times, there will come a a new birth. You'll put down roots and you'll bring fruit up. And uh, Isaiah will develop that uh, metaphor as he goes on through the rest of the book until you get to chapter 66. And he talks about this remnant going everywhere throughout the world telling him about the good news that God has come to earth to stay. Now what this means is that God's ultimate purpose in history is to prepare a remnant for his name. That's why he permits war. That's why he permits these times of deprivation. That's why things get tough for all of us. It's to purify a remnant, to call out a people by his name, to bring men and women to the knowledge of Christ, So they'll put their roots down into him and begin to grow and bear fruit wherever they go. Now, if you'd like some New Testament corroboration of that, would you turn to Acts 17? Acts 17, verse 24. You'll notice that uh, Paul 
who is the author of these words, is probably thinking about Isaiah 36 because he echoes Hezekiah's words. Remember Hezekiah, uh, Hezekiah's prayer in which he said, Deliver us so the world will know. And then he describes, uh, he describes uh, uh, God's uh, sovereignty as the one who made heaven and earth and who controls all of history. Verse 24, Paul, as you know, is engaged in a debate with philosophers, with the Athenian philosophers. And you, you would expect this sort of statement to come out of that, that kind of debate. Verse 24, the God who made the world. And everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. For he is not and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, Adam, he made every nation of men. This crisis in the Middle East to draw men and women to himself, men and women and children to himself. Families are being Divided, some will be divided forever. So, you know, human lives will be lost, perhaps, almost certainly, in this conflict. And uh, we, we don't know what the outcome will be, but we know that God is in control of all of the events of history. And instead of being panicked and being a part of this world that's biting its fingernails, giving way to fear and wondering what in the world's going to happen next, we can live with poise and with peace and with quietness of heart. And we can seek out those that are seeking for God because they're out there. We can give a reason for the hope that's in us. Now that's the meaning of history, as I understand it. The sign that uh, God gave Hezekiah was that uh, in three days things would be back to normal. And I couldn't help but think as I, as I read that, that that's the sign that, that God has given to us. They looked forward to normalcy occurring after three days. We look back to the cross and the resurrection on the third, on the third day. Uh, just a difference of years and days, that's all. And I'm sure it's not intended, but I think the sign is the same. We look back to the cross and we remember that God's in control. He permitted principalities and powers to do their worst. He himself experienced the pain that we experience from turmoil and conflict and warfare. He took all of that upon himself. And though it looked like he'd been defeated, it looked like the end for him. It was the beginning because on the third day he burst out of that tomb and and he was declared victor over principalities and powers and he made salvation for us. That actually happened. As the Apostles' Creed puts it, he was, he was crucified during the reign of Pontius the Pilate. It's not a myth. It's not some made-up story. It actually happened. It happened in history. And God is even today working in history. Well, let's pray. And let's prepare our hearts for this time of fellowship around his table as we look back to that, that victorious sign, the sign in which we conquer the cross. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us again that the nations do your bidding, that, that Saddam Hussein and all the leaders of the Middle East are under your control. They're not running amok. 
There are no mavericks over there. You're in control of everything. We know that you only permit evil men to go so far. And in some mysterious way that we, at this point in history, do not yet understand, you're going to use even this conflict to bring glory to yourself. And in some way people will know that you're the King of kings and Lord of lords. And even now, Lord, you're using these perilous times in order to convince people that there's nothing in this life that can bring stability and and ultimate security. Help us, Lord, to be your spokesman during this time, to be men and women who walk with peace and poise, who are unrattled, unpreoccupied, not preoccupied with this... uh, crisis, but preoccupied with people, not uh, reacting to the rise in gas prices, but loving people right where they are, caring for them, sharing with them the good news that you came to earth to stay, and that you're reaching out for them. Use us, Lord, for your sake, we ask in Jesus' name.